Welcome to the British Home Front in the First World War. This series was recorded at the University of St Andrews in June 2018 to accompany a conference marking the contribution by the peoples of the British Isles to the national war effort. In this set of podcasts, we look at trade unions and the rise of the Labour Party, conscription, charitable work and refugees, internees and prisoners of war. We hear next from Professor Ian Beckett about enlistment and conscription. I'm Ian Beckett, Professor of Military History at the University of Kent, just newly retired. What I'm going to talk about is the process of enlistment and conscription between 1914 and 1918, looking first at the voluntary system and then conscription, which is introduced in January of 1916, looking at the factors that influence why men enlist or why they don't enlist, how conscription is applied after 1916. In 1914, the regular army was very small. It was really a kind of imperial constabulary. It's 247,000 officers and men. But you then have to add to that those who are in the army reserve, and what's called the special reserve, and there's a part-time territorial force. So you've got about 733,000 men roughly in uniform in 1914. But then, of course, you have the major expansion that takes place from August onwards. So in the end, you have, during the war itself, 4.9 million wartime enlistments. So if you add that to those already serving, we end up with 5.7 million men passing through the army between 1914 and 1918, which is about 22.1% of the entire male population of the United Kingdom. But it's a greater proportion of those of military age which would normally be considered those 18 to 41. And because conscription was never applied to Ireland and the response from Ireland was never as great, it's a higher proportion of those on the mainland. Apart from very briefly in the 18th century, Britain had always had a system of voluntary enlistment, whereas, of course, the great continental armies were conscript armies and had been certainly since the Revolutionary and the Napoleonic Wars. So the continental powers can instantly mobilise millions of men. You have a battalion, and a battalion is part of a brigade, a brigade is part of a division, a division is part of a corps, and then a corps is part of an army. In Britain in peacetime, there's one corps in the British army, which is based at Aldershot. There are 20 corps in peacetime in the French army, and there are 30 corps in peacetime in the German army. You've got the cadre of men who are already doing their conscript service at the point that the war begins. But then you instantly bring back all those who'd previously served and done their three years or two years of military service. So you have a much greater reserve of trained or partially trained manpower. Now, Britain just doesn't have that at all. There is a perceived need to expand the army from the beginning. The man who became Secretary of State for War in August 1914 was Kitchener. Now, in theory, before the war, there was a means of expanding the army, which would be by the part-time territorial force. In every county, you've got a county territorial association, and this is going to be the mechanism by which the army is expanded. Kitchener was a British agent and consul general in Egypt and happened to be on home leave when the war broke out and was unexpectedly appointed Secretary of State. He had not served in the British Army, the Home Army, since the 1880s. He'd become very secretive, he'd become very autocratic, and he didn't like the idea of the territories at all. He called it a town clerk's army. 
There's a degree of prejudice there. Some people suggest that he'd seen untrained volunteers when he'd briefly witnessed the Franco-Prussian War back in 1870-71. He believes that the territorials would be under too much local influence. And therefore, he decided that the war office would take on the role of expanding the army. But of course, that instantly means it'll totally ignore the county territorial associations. So therefore, the war office has to cobble together, in a sense, its own recruiting apparatus. And in effect, it can't do so. Sometimes they actually did use the county territorial associations. But you've got countless individuals and different organisations who also are trying to raise battalions alongside the war office. So of all the new what's called service battalions or Kitchener battalions, if you like, and new reserve battalions raised for the regular army, about 38% are raised by either individuals or organisations who are entirely outside the war office. But the complication is that the territorial force is also expanding at the same time. So there's actually competition between them for relatively scarce resources in terms of uniform, equipment, weapons and so on. You could enlist in the regular army at 18. You couldn't go overseas until you were 18 and a half. But you could enlist in a territorial force at 17. One of the reasons that Kitchener gives for not using the territorials is many of them were either older married men or they were under the age of 18 or 18 and a half. So part of his reasoning was that they should not have to go overseas when there were plenty of single men who could be recruited directly on a wartime enlistment. There are other complications with the territorials. There are legislative problems. If you were territorial, you could not actually go overseas unless you had signed what was called the Imperial Service Obligation. And a lot of territorials in 1914 did not actually sign that obligation. Many of them were married. Another problem was that if you joined the territorials, the form that you then signed to say, I will go overseas, says you can never be sent to another unit. Your unit cannot be amalgamated. It cannot be disbanded. If numbers of casualties increased, then that would be an obligation on the part of the war office that simply could not be kept. The other thing was that the way in which the territorial force had been advertised before the war had been as a home defence force. And Kitchener does believe that there's a, a real threat of invasion in the autumn of 1914. And therefore, if the territorials are going to be the main defence against invasion, they have to be kept back. The expeditionary force was relatively small. It's going to be six infantry divisions and one cavalry division. Even to reach the establishment of six divisions, 60% of those men were recalled reservists from the Army Reserve. And because of this fear of invasion, two of those regular divisions initially were kept back in Britain. So the original expeditionary force was only four infantry divisions, one cavalry division. And then the 5th Division went over towards the end of August 1914, and the 6th Division didn't get there until the beginning of September. So Kitchener sees there being real problems with the territorial force, which encourages this idea that you should expand the army entirely separately from the county associations. Kitchener, initially, he wants regulars, and there are imperial garrisons overseas in India, in South Africa. Now, these are British troops, not, I should say, Indian troops at this stage. There are British troops serving in India. The imperial garrisons were brought back in September 1914. Three territorial divisions were sent overseas 
one to Egypt and two to India. The two in India never came back. They were there for the whole duration of the war. In terms of the Western Front, odd units of territorials go overseas from late September, early October 1914. I think the first was the London Scottish, and there was the Oxfordshire Yeomanry. It was the first mounted regiment to go overseas from the territorials. But they're seen really as very much filling the gap until the new armies, or the Kitchener armies, are going to be ready to take the field. Kitchener himself originally believed that you would build a very large army and it would not necessarily be committed to the continent for three years. At that point, if you have a very large army after three years and the French and the Russians and the Germans have taken all the casualties, then Britain is going to dictate the peace. That relies on the French and the Russians being willing to take the burden of the war on land, which they were not. Rather ruefully, just before the Battle of Luce in September of 1915, Kitchener remarked something to the effect that we have to make wars we must and not as we should like to. So you then get the territorial divisions being committed to the Western Front, and indeed the first complete divisions of territorials go into action at Luce. The new armies, or the Kitchener armies, are trained for something like nine months at home. And therefore, they also, in terms of divisions, are beginning to get overseas in the autumn of 1915. The first large-scale commitment of the new army divisions is actually on the first day of the Somme in July of 1916. So that's, in many respects, their real baptism of fire. The idea of the Powells came initially from Lord Derby, who was known as the King of Lancashire, a very influential figure in the Northwest. He raised the idea around about the 25th of August 1914, and it caught on very quickly. The Powell's battalions are part of the Kitchener armies, but they are a very distinct part of the new armies. There are 115 of them in all, and they are mostly raised from particularly urban centres, so Manchester, Liverpool, Hull, the larger urban areas of Britain. Recruitment in terms of voluntary enlistment, which is from August 1914 until the introduction of conscription in early 1916, is a very complex affair. There are wide regional, local variations, enormous numbers of different kinds of motivations for why men would enlist or perhaps would not enlist. Certainly one major factor is employment. Now, in peacetime, there had always been this correlation between employment and enlistment in the regular army. There was a man called Field Marshal Lord Nicholson, who had been quartermaster general before the war. There was a big debate about conscription in pre-war society, which was invariably rejected by British politicians and the British public. Somebody asked Nicholson, in fact, in 1906, for his view on conscription. He said, well, we've got conscription. And the answer is, well, no, we haven't. But he said, yes, there is a compulsion of destitution, which is a lovely phrase. And in a sense, that old, almost traditional relationship between the unemployed and enlistment continues during the war. Something in the region of 480,000 men are unemployed in August 1914 because of the prevailing economic uncertainty. You've then got many more who are put on half-time. Studies have been done for areas like Bristol, Birmingham, Leeds, and it's very clear that the majority of the unemployed enlist. 
it also depends on, of course, the nature of the industry. Uh, young men tend to enlist before older men. The age structure of the labour force is such that, for example, the agricultural labour force is far older on average than, say, industry as a whole. So you don't tend to get as many people from agriculture coming forward. But another factor there is it's an abundant harvest in the autumn of 1914. And there are plenty of instances of farmers in the southwest or in East Anglia or in the southeast who are offering incentives to men to stay on the land. If you look at somewhere like Cornwall, there are extraction industries, tin, china, clay. Now, those have been areas which had had a considerable pre-war depression. But there, in fact, you don't get enlistment because it's been argued that the labour force in those industries is so used to cycles of boom and bust that it knew that better times might well be round the corner. Or if you look at somewhere like the East Coast Mines in Scotland, they suffered much more from unemployment in August 1914 than West Coast Mines in Scotland because they'd just lost German Baltic markets, particularly the German market. So therefore, there's a much greater uptake from East Coast coal miners than from West Coast coal miners. It's a very uneven response depending on the nature of industry, the age structure of industry, and so on. In 1914, the army is overwhelmingly English. What then happens is that Wales and Scotland then provide their proportion, as it were, of soldiers within the total. But in fact, in case of Scotland, they provide proportionally more than England in that period. So there's a basic equality, which is between England, Scotland and Wales by the end of the war. The difference, of course, is Ireland. Ireland is highly politicised in 1914. It's in many respects this armed camp. You've got the Ulster Volunteer Force who want to resist home rule, which has been passed onto the statute book, but then suspended for the duration of the war. You've got the Irish National Volunteers who represent the nationalist community as well. Kitchener appealed to the leaderships of both the Ulster Volunteer Force and the Irish National Volunteers. The leadership in each case responded. And you've got about 59,000 men from those two groups who enlist in Ireland in 1914-15. They're serving alongside about 57,000 other Irishmen with no affiliation to either. But generally, recruiting as a whole drops very rapidly everywhere in the autumn of 1914, primarily because of government offering new contracts for things like clothing, munitions, weaponry, and so on. So there's a big take-up of employment opportunities. That affects Ireland as well as the rest of Britain. But there's a much sharper decline in Ireland because of that political aspect. And the response from Ireland is never as great, and conscription was never applied to Ireland. It's fairly clear that the limits of voluntary enlistment have been reached by the autumn of 1915. And there was this long and very agonising debate through the course of 1915 as to accepting the inevitable, which was the introduction of conscription. It comes in January of 1916 with what's sometimes called the Bachelor's Bill. And the first piece of legislation conscripts single men and childless widowers between the ages of 18 and 41. But then in May of 1916, it's extended to all men between the ages of 18 and 41. And ultimately, in April 1918, conscription was extended to men between 18 and 51. 
But though it was expected that the equality of sacrifice and the burden of military service would now be equal, in fact, that was not the case. You've got about 2.4 million men who enlist prior to January 1916. 2.5 million are enlisted after January 1916, but about 1.3 million of them are actually conscripts because you have to take into account those who enlist between January and May. There had been a last gasp at the voluntary system had been something called the Derby Scheme in the autumn of 1915. This was to ask men if they would be willing to volunteer if they were called upon to do so. Lord Derby had been very heavily involved in recruiting efforts from really the beginning of the war onwards. He became Secretary of State for War in 1916. This is after the introduction of conscription. But Derby, because of his involvement with recruiting, there was this suggestion that a last appeal could be made. And Derby sponsors this appeal, therefore it's known as the Derby Scheme. But everybody knew that if that failed, then inevitably they would have to introduce conscription. The uptake from married men was rather greater than from single men, because Asquith had rather rashly promised that no married man would be called before any single man was left. Some of those are enlisted as well, so you end up with about 1.3 million conscripts. The point about conscription is that of those who are of military age for much of the war, that is 18 to 41, only about half those actually do enlist. And of the half who do enlist, half of them actually spend half the war as civilians. So there's not quite the military participation that we sometimes suppose if you look at it in relation to the whole population. Though there had never been conscription for the regular army other than briefly in the early 18th century on a couple of occasions, there had been conscription for something called the militia, which was a home defence force. The militia ballot, as it was known, operated from 1757 to 1831. But it became so unpopular that thereafter politicians decided that it would be tantamount to committing political suicide if you introduce conscription. But what's interesting about the militia ballot is that there are always exemptions, for example, of clergymen or the provision for conscientious objection. So you could appeal against conscription on the grounds of conscience. You could appeal in terms of family commitment. You could appeal very much in terms of your employment also on the grounds of your physical fitness. So conscription, in theory, should equalise the burden of military service, but it does not do so because of the exemptions that are applied. Now, one major one is physical fitness. Increasingly, there is enormous pressure on medical boards to lower the medical rejection statistics or standards to try to get as many men to the front as possible. But it's still the case that in the last 12 months of the war, a million men are exempted on physical grounds. That tells you a great deal about levels of urban deprivation in pre-war Britain. Conscience has been exaggerated in the sense that a great deal of attention has been paid to conscientious objectors. It's a very minor issue in many ways. There are only 16,500 claims for exemption from military service on the grounds of conscience in the whole war. Now, that's a tiny amount. When you consider, for example, 
that of the first 1.2 million men who are called up under the bachelor's bill, single men or childless widowers, 750,000 of them appealed. And the majority of them appealed on the grounds of employment. Employment is by far the most significant reason for why men would not be conscripted, because it's what we call the total war. Total war means that it's just as important to outproduce your opponent as to outfight your opponent. So increasingly, mining, shipping, munitions, aircraft production, tank production, all these become areas which are vital to the war effort, just as if you were in the armed forces. The so-called schedules of reserved occupation are constantly being revised to weed out more men. But you still end up with 2.5 million men exempted from military service by reason of occupation by the end of the war. Now, if you do claim exemption, you go before what's called a military service tribunal. The military service tribunals have had a very bad press. They had a military representative. It wasn't usually a soldier to represent the interests of the war office. And it has been argued in the past that tribunals were often very much under the influence of the military representative. The other issue has been that they were very hostile towards conscientious objectors. Again, that's exaggerated to a degree. Quakers, for example, everybody accepts that Quakers have a very legitimate claim for exemption, and generally speaking, that is well recognised. It's some of the other Christian sects, Christadelphinians, for example, who are not well understood, who have a great deal of difficulty, or certainly those who claim exemption on grounds really of political conscience, they have a pretty hard time. But generally speaking, what really guides tribunals is their sense of local economic needs. The more that we've looked at tribunals, more of the papers of tribunals are coming to light. Everybody once thought that virtually all had been destroyed. That's not actually the case. It's increasingly clear that what interested tribunals was the local economy, that they had to balance the military needs of the country with not only significant industries, for example, in their own areas, but also very much with local economic needs. For example, Northamptonshire, all the county appeal tribunal papers have survived for Northamptonshire. There you've got a very important boot and shoe trade. And you've got this tension, whereas the war office is demanding that more men be conscripted. At the same time, another part of the war office has just issued a very large contract for boots. How can this be fulfilled if the other part of the war office wants all these skilled men in the army? So tribunals negotiate between the national need and the local need. The retail trade, for example, local shopkeepers, sole proprietors, heads of businesses. There has to be enough people to supply local needs. And in rural areas, of course, agriculture is important to the local economy and to the local community. It's not often that butchers and bakers get conscripted. There is this pressure that women are going to be able to substitute for men. But in terms of butchers and bakers, there is perception you cannot possibly have a woman slaughtering meat. So therefore, butchers don't get conscripted. 
In the case of bakers, traditionally they work in the early hours to produce the bread and invariably in very hot conditions and it was fairly traditional for men at least to strip to the waist. So therefore, again, you cannot possibly have a woman working alongside half-naked men in the early hours of the morning. So there are these interesting gendered aspects to some of the tribunal decisions as well. There was this fear that introducing conscription into Ireland would certainly exacerbate the political situation, particularly after the Easter Rising at Easter 1916 in Dublin. But there was this idea that if there is an equality of sacrifice on the mainland, then it must be applied to Ireland as well. The Germans mounted a whole series of spring offensives in 1918. The first of them began on 21st of March 1918. And at one point, it looked like they might even break through the British and French lines. So in that crisis, they decided that they would increase in Britain, the age to 51. Measures would be within the legislation, if need be, to increase the age in Britain to 56, but also to extend conscription to Ireland. But then the crisis passed. And from August 1918, the Allied armies are on the march again. So it was never felt necessary to extend conscription to Ireland. But the very fact that there had been that enabling legislation caused enormous problems in Ireland. Everybody thinks that the rising in 1916 triggers a great deal of the subsequent problems. It doesn't. Those who rise in Dublin in 1916 are not terribly popular overall. The executions after the Easter Rising certainly caused a great deal of problems, but things had settled down. When the legislation is passed so that there is a possibility of extending conscription to Ireland, then that becomes a very highly politicised issue. Sinn Féin makes a great deal about it, and it's often suggested that that's what really undermines constitutional nationalism in Ireland with very fatal consequences leading up to Sinn Féin's victories in the general election in November of 1918. Looking at the First World War as a whole and to the legacy of what happens between 1914 and 1918, you could argue that it's really the first time in a century that Britain has had a true nation in arms. Despite those who are exempted, you've still got most sections of society within Britain, if not Ireland, contribute in some way to the war effort in terms of military service as opposed to other kinds of war service. So it's certainly a nation in arms. And lessons were learned from that. So many mistakes have been made and there was no coherent manpower policy until January of 1918. Finally, the cabinet decided we need this many men in the army, we need this many men in industry, we need this many men producing ships, we need this many men down the mines. So one of the great lessons of the First World War was that there was an understanding that if there was going to be another major war, there would have to be conscription from the beginning and there would have to be a coherent manpower policy. So in the late 30s, they did draw up that kind of coherent manpower policy. Partial conscription was reintroduced in April of 1939. But then when war broke out in September 1939, full conscription was re-implemented and the legislation was all in place, ready to go. They'd learned the lessons of the mistakes of the First World War. You end up with far fewer men serving in the army in the Second World War than in the First World War because they got the manpower policy right. But the corollary of that was that the army was running out of men by 1944. There was a shortage of infantrymen, so you ended up with 
some RAF men being pressed into khaki and divisions being cannibalized to reinforce other divisions. So you get the manpower policy right, but the army is at the very bottom of the list of priorities. That was Professor Ian Beckett on enlistment and conscription. You have been listening to the British Home Front in the First World War. The podcast series was made possible thanks to the generosity of John Cawthorne and the 1926 Foundation. The conference was supported by the Department for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport and the Scottish Government. It was a Chrome Radio production for the University of St Andrews with music by the pipes and drums of the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards. The producer was Katrina Oliphant, with sound design by Chris Sharp. The series editor was Professor Sir Hugh Strawn. In our next podcast, we hear from Dr Peter Grant about charitable work during the First World War.